0: Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this week's podcast, which is a great conversation with Saurabh Amari, I want to let you know about a very special event we have coming up soon. On Tuesday, the 29th of August, I will be recording a special live podcast with none other than Michael Schellenberger. Michael will be known to most of you, I have no doubt. He is a brilliant best selling author and journalist. He was one of the journalists behind the Twitter files, which made waves around the world. And on Zoom at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, the 29th of August, Michael and I will be talking about the censorship industrial complex, global warming hysteria, the problem with wokeness, and much more besides. You really don't want to miss this. It's a free event, but it is exclusive to Spike supporters. So if you're a Spike supporter, go to the online donor hub now and claim your free ticket for this live podcast recording. If you're not a Spike supporter, what are you waiting for? This is the perfect time to sign up. You'll be able to grab your ticket for this live podcast, and you'll also get access to lots of other perks as well, like ad-free reading, access to our comments section, and tickets for other free events too. For as little as £5 a month, you'll get access to all of that as a Spike supporter. So sign up today, go to spike onlinecom supporters. That's spite-online.com slash supporters. I hope to see you on the 29th.
1: Wokeism, or I sometimes use the phrase lifestyle leftism, the leftism that's not concerned with the traditional commitments of the left, but rather it's all about policing working class people, their use of language, their consumption choices, and the rules it constantly change so that if you haven't gotten the memo, you might say the wrong thing that was just acceptable two months ago. All of these are actually disciplinary mechanisms for the human resources department. When, when you have a market tyranny, it often goes hand in hand with state tyranny because working people don't aren't making enough to just live in dignity.
0: Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Sorab Amari. Sorab, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Brendan. Good to be back. It's great to have you back
0: on. Uh, we've had numerous chats over the past few years about politics and culture and morality and all sorts of issues. And I want to now talk to you about your new book, which is called Tyranny Inc. How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It. It's really an extraordinary book. It's very, very interesting. Uh, I, I think it's surprised a lot of people. You are now being talked about as one of the conservatives against capitalism. So there's, I think there's a lot to kind of unpack with that. Um, but in in essence, we'll get into some of the various issues you address in the book. But in essence, it is a pretty devastating critique of corporate power in the US and the ways in which it can impact extraordinarily negatively on working class people's lives, on their liberties, on their dignity. It really uh, digs into that problem. Um, so I guess my first question for you is a broad one. Are you a Marxist now? Has there been a change of heart? How would you describe yourself politically, given you've just published this book, which is a pretty devastating critique of contemporary capitalism?
1: Uh, th- that's a good question. So I I went through my Trotskyist phase, uh, like many people do, at age 17, 18. And um, no, I'm not going back. Uh, there are many ways uh, and many perspectives from which you can be critical of... Uh, of capitalism or unrestrained capitalism, let's say, or the unhindered workings of the market system. Um, In my case, uh, the worldview is more inspired by Catholicism and the kind of Christian slash social democratic tradition that it fed into. And so uh, really what the book champions is not uh, the abolition of private property or the abolition of uh, the capitalist class and the, you know, dictatorship of the proletariat, but rather something more modest, something that we had on both sides of the Atlantic uh, in the first few decades after World War II, which took different names. In the U.S., it was called the New Deal Order. In, the, in Britain, often called you know social democracy. Uh, in, in Europe as well, social Christian democracy. You can also think about it as what I call political exchange capitalism. What I mean by that is it's a system that um, recognizes that markets are good at allocating resources in some ways and that they they're beneficial but that they are tools and therefore they should be sub- markets should be subject to um, what we expect of in a decent society, which is democratic give and take, you know accountability, injustices that are embedded in them should be justiciable in the courts, etc. And that's what we've lost in the neoliberal era of the past. You know, two generations or so. So, no, uh, one can take seriously certain Marxist critiques about the way that, um, uh, especially after the Industrial Revolution, society is sharply divided into two kind of antagonistic classes, et cetera, without going whole hog, you know, on on the Marxist program for, uh, you know, total abolition of private property and so on.
0: Yeah, that first opening question was ever so slightly in jest, because, of course, in the book you do say that you're not advocating full socialism, uh, but you do talk about the New Deal values. um, You do value unionisation in the workplace. Uh, I want to ask you about that later as well. Um, So it's a fascinating book in terms of, as you say, Positing a critique of unrestrained capitalism, but not necessarily from a traditional left perspective, but rather from a slightly different angle. So uh, there's a lot there to unpick. I think um, one thing I wanted to ask you early on was just what what your understanding of freedom in this book is. Because one of the points you make, which rang true for me, and I'm sure it will, will ring true for a lot of readers. Is that there is there has been this conflation of freedom with free markets, particularly in the u s. context, there was the emergence of a right over the past few decades which seemed to uh, link freedom in almost entirely with the free market, the the uh, a lack of restraints attached to corporate power or capitalist enterprise. Um and at the same time, there is there has traditionally been an understanding that restrictions of freedom tend to come from the state or they tend to come from the mob, it's not necessarily uh, within the free market arena that we see restrictions on freedom. You're trying to turn that on its head to to develop an understanding of freedom that goes beyond free markets. And also, more importantly, to develop an understanding of tyranny that indicates that uh, uh, the workplace, the free market, can often be one of the true sources of tyranny in people's lives. So can you just explain what you're saying about freedom in this book, why you think we need a broader understanding of that concept and the restraints that are sometimes put on it?
1: Uh, I come from this, from the kind of classical uh, tradition and classical philosophy that um, freedom is not the mere absence of restraints, um, but rather the ability to, to live in a flourishing way as a human being. And human beings are not just... Uh, creatures of economics, but they're also political uh, animals, they're social animals, uh, and they're animals who, you know, uh, are capable of striving for lives of virtue and contemplation. Um, And for that to be possible, paradoxically, um, a social system that only emphasizes market autonomy um, is pretty dangerous and and unlikely to yield that kind of, that ideal of uh, freedom. So in the same way, uh, you know, obviously the classical tradition says that uh, tyranny is whenever a ruler or a group of rulers um, wields society for their own private benefit as opposed to the common good of the whole, which when they do that, it makes it difficult for ordinary people to flourish. And I accept that definition of tyranny. I only note that under uh, modern conditions and especially under conditions of neoliberal capitalism, which is a kind of overused term, you know, whenever, as soon as a a person on the left opens their mouth, as you know, they say neoliberal, uh, neoliberalism, it's become kind of a cliche, but I have a kind of strict definition of it. We can get into what precisely is different between neoliberal capitalism and um, earlier iterations. But under these conditions, the tyrant isn't necessarily the government. Um, It's often private actors. It's the uh, employer who, as a condition of you earning a paycheck, requires you to give up your right to your your voice, your singing voice, your persona, et cetera. As I, as I show in the book, much of the book is reportorial. It's not it's not theory. It's mostly reported stories of what ordinary Americans uh, face in the marketplace. So for example, I show this employment agreement where you're, re- where you're required as a condition of earning a paycheck to give up your right to uh, your voice, your singing voice, etc, not just because they want to put your you know picture in the company brochure or in a training manual, rather because they they ask you to relinquish it for commercial purposes, right so in other words, they would lease your voice, etc, your face to commercial third actors, and the contract and employment agreement specifically bars you from then suing either your own employer or whoever it licensed your image and voice to for anything, for breach of privacy, for harassment, anything you could, in order to earn a paycheck, that's just one of the many uh, conditions that you agree to. And, and you see how, you know, the ideal of maximal market autonomy unrestrained by, for example, the countervailing power of working people through unions or government protections can actually work to the, um, to the loss of freedom of ordinary people um, and, and in ways that, you know, systematically begin to amount to what I call private tyranny.
0: So you don't go as far as Marx uh, in in an obvious way, because Marx's point, um, he said that the worker is free in a double sense. He is free to work or free to starve. He is free to sell his labor or he is free, to, um, his, free for his life to come to an end. So Marx presented that as the uh, incredibly stark choice facing people under the banner of freedom, but what what you put forward in the book, which I think is very interesting, is the more subtle ways in which contemporary unrestrained capitalism, in some instances, restricts people's freedom and impacts on their dignity. And I did want to. Um, dig in, because as you say, uh, uh, most of the book is reporting, telling the stories of what working Americans have experienced in the workplace and from the boss class and undesirable working conditions. And I wanted to dig into a few of those stories with you. Um, I love the fact that the book opens with a series of stories about Russian, Chinese and Iranian workers being subjected to extraordinarily Difficult and tyrannical expectations in the workplace. For example, being told that they have to attend a speech by Putin, otherwise, they will lose a day's pay, or being made unemployable because they ask awkward questions about their working conditions. And then you reveal that actually it wasn't uh, Russian, Chinese, and Iranian workers that this happened to, it was American workers. And I hope that's not too much of a spoiler for listeners. It really drags the reader into the book, and and, and listeners should definitely read this book. Tell us a little bit about those stories. I was really struck by the um, imposition made on some workers to attend a rally with Donald Trump. Um, And and the fact that in some workplaces in the U.S. you can be made rendered unemployable if you ask awkward questions about working conditions. Tell us a bit more about those stories and and why you decided to open the book with them in particular.
1: Well, I I, I chose these stories and then changed the backdrop and the names and places to shift the background to Iran or China. Um, Because when those stories are seen in that way, they fit into these comfortable American, or I should say, Western narratives that tyranny is what happens, quote unquote, over there in places that don't have checks and balances, that don't have human rights commissions and and um, you know elections and so forth. Whereas you know we, we, we don't have coercion, and then to reveal that in fact you know we're subjected to pervasive coercion um, in, in, in the market in a in a in a private economy. And precisely because our system deems these areas of life to be private, they are not subject to the same democratic give and take and other elements of, of uh, decent society that we normally expect. So, where we spend most of our lives is at the workplace, most of our waking adult lives. And it's precisely in that place where, when we enter the workplace, we're told, well, most of the rights that you expect don't uh, apply. So, the survey, uh, you know, workers being forced to attend the Trump rally is absolutely true. This happened in Pennsylvania at a Shell plant, uh, the, the energy company. And you know, one of the powers that work uh, that employers in the United States have is what's called captive audience hearings, where they can they can actually mandate um, attendance at political events that uh, favor the employer's point of view. Uh, this is a sort of it's a relatively new thing. The New Deal, specific, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the law, but the Wagner Act uh, didn't include this, right? Because it recognized that workers and employers have different levels of Bargaining power and just power in general, and so it wasn't that like they they each have a symmetrical right to free speech. So they can just because workers can present their worldview at, at the workplace in terms of unionization doesn't mean that the employer should have a parallel right to present its worldview. But over the decades, frankly, mostly Republican lawmakers and courts have chipped away at um, at that law, such that now work, employers have this right to force workers to um, attend captive audience hearings where they, d- they can't speak back. And basically, the employer gets to broadcast its point of view. Now, what's interesting about that is in this case, it's, it's a right wing speech. And I did that to just sort of, uh, you know, because a lot of readers, uh, I come from the right, as you know, and so a lot of my readers uh, are used to hearing about like woke inter- indoctrination at workplaces. And that's real enough. But I just wanted to show that it can cut the other way as well. The reason I wanted to show that it can cut the other way is precisely because a lot of people on the right in the United States right now are worked up about so-called woke capital. Um, but to me, it seems that these efforts can be misdirected because they only focus on kind of cultural issues and certain cultural elements of yes, center left corporations like Disney and Bud Light shoving their ideologies down the throats of consumers. Uh, but they don't get at the the fundamental power imbalance that makes that possible. Whereas if we address the power imbalance in the workplace and then the private economy in general, then, um, overweening corporate power doesn't loom so large in the lives of ordinary people in general, whatever the ideology may be, whether it's like, you know, um, the, the trans mascot for the, for the beer company or Trumpism at the workplace. Um, there's a kind of structural fix to this. I, I, I try to suggest, and it can kind of diffuse our culture wars. If, if we just reduce power, not saying they're going to go away, but if you just reduce corporate power over our private lives, then it doesn't matter what the corporation's worldview is, whether it's wokeism or Trumpism.
0: I know it doesn't look like it from the outside, but Spite is a small team and we have limited resources. So we know just how hard it can be to manage a small business. Getting a passion project off the ground might feel impossible, and it's often tough to know where to start. Luckily, there's a solution and it sounds like this. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform that will help you start, run and grow your business. Right now, Shopify is helping to revolutionise millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling baby grows or gravy boats, Shopify makes everything simple. It demystifies the selling process so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify has all your sales channels covered, from a shopfront ready point-of-sale system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even helps you sell across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. What's great about Shopify is that you don't need any special skills in design or coding. It has all the industry-leading tools you need to ignite your growth and give you full control over your brand. And when you do need a hand, Shopify has 24-7 customer support and an extensive business course library, so you'll have help every step of the way. Whether your goals are big or small, Shopify can make them happen. It's the best way to get the confidence you need and take your business to the next level. What are you waiting for? Get serious about your passion and start using Shopify today. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash brendan, all lowercase. That's shopify.co.uk slash brendan to take your business to the next level today. shopify.co.uk slash brendan. Um, I was going to ask you about wokeness a bit later on, but I'll put it in there now, um, uh, given what you've said there, because it's very striking. Um, I think you show admirable restraint um, in in the fact that there are so few mentions of woke in the book. It's hardly the word doesn't appear very often at all. Um, I was looking out for it and it's not there very much. And I'm sure that was a conscious decision on your part, given uh, what you've just outlined there, that you wanted to. Introduce a broader, more economic description of the tyranny that can uh, grow in a workplace in people's lives. Um, But I wanted to ask you about the interplay between uh, corporate tyranny, the kind of corporate tyranny you outline in your book, and the rise of what we might refer to as woke ideology. Because I agree with you that one can overemphasize one aspect of it and downplay the other. So the right will overemphasize. You know, these stupid, woke, blue-haired, 26-year-old um, up-and-coming execs at Disney or on social media who are telling people what they can say and telling people how they should think. There can be an overemphasis, of course, on that side of it. But then isn't it also possible that there can be an overemphasis, like, mostly from the left, on um, the more old-fashioned forms of workplace um Bullying, I guess, where bosses are saying, look, you have to stay an extra hour and I don't don't give a damn if you miss your kids after class, whatever. There's an overemphasis on that from the left. Isn't there a necessity to bring those two critiques together to look at not only uh, the mechanisms through which people are bullied or controlled in the workplace, but also the new ideologies that the capitalist class uses to justify their power over their workers?
1: So, I mean... several answers to that. The first one is I, I I do address wokeism and I specifically use what I call lifestyle leftism. Uh, but in this context, I mean, I, I basically just as your listeners know, if they've encountered me on your podcast before and my other work, like obviously I, I find this stuff somewhere between risible and ridiculous to downright sinister, right? Like the fact that we're forced to say that, you know, a man can become a woman and All the alterations to to language that that necessitates, and et cetera, et cetera. Believe me, like I'm I'm totally against that stuff and find it obnoxious. Um, But in the political economic context, I I argue that that the, the right often misses the function that this kind of. Wokeism, or I sometimes use the phrase lifestyle leftism, which uh, I borrow from the leader of Germany's left party, Zara um, Wagonecht, uh, which she means by it is a leftism that's not concerned with the traditional commitments of the left, like, you know, raising up the power of lower middle class and working class people in relation to capital and just helping them live lives of greater dignity and security. But rather, it's all about policing their um language their use of language their consumption choices all your you know what kind the, the kind of car that you drive and, and uh, how you refer to different groups of people and the rules kind of minutely change and constantly change so that you're always at the vagaries of the if you haven't gotten the memo you might say the wrong thing that was just acceptable two months ago all of these are actually disciplinary mechanisms for the human resources department uh, they're not they're not emancipatory as the left used to call the things that are good um, I give some examples, you know, that are pretty funny. The uh, One very famous one, a grimly funny one, where there's an out, there's a chain of outdoor um, gear stores, like where you buy camping and hiking gear in the United States called REI. It may exist in Britain, if I can't remember when I lived there, if they had REIs. But anyway, it's just, it's like fancy hiking shoes and uh, the sort of jackets and so forth. And the company not too long ago, a few months ago, had a podcast. It's a company podcast where their chief diversity officer was speaking. And she began by saying, hello, my name is so-and-so. My pronouns are she, her. And I just want to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the traditional lands of the Ozone people. So she did a pronoun check, and then she did a land acknowledgement, as they're called, about sort of indigenous colonization and so forth. And then the topic of the podcast was why you shouldn't join a labor union. <laughs> 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 um, you know, or, or or another example. I mean, at the height of the pandemic, the New York Times did the story showing that the it's said some of these large corporations, the CEOs were making just hundreds and hundreds of times more than the ordinary worker. You know, the highest one was two hundred and eleven million dollars a year. And this at a time when we were all told it's a time of solidarity, of admiration for essential workers and so on at the at peak pandemic. And there's a Democratic lawmaker where I live in New York. And her response to this story was, where are the women so it would be OK, you know, if if you have these vast sort of eye watering material inequalities, as long as, it, you know, it's not just the boss. There's a girl boss, you know. And so, you know, the, the, so I think I think um, that's the kind of function that wokeness too often, too often plays in these contexts. And um, I think the, the right is too often just happy to either mock this stuff or roll its eyes, but not get at the sort of underlying political economic um, issues. The other point you said, just briefly address, you know, like, you know, bosses need to um, be able to get work done, et cetera, at the workplace. I certainly grant that. I used to work in public schools in the United States and you certainly had your share of teachers who basically just sat at their desk and read the newspapers at taxpayers' expense, et cetera. I think that that that, that has been a problem in the past. I, I do think right now, um, and still can be a problem, to be clear. But right now the, the the balance of power has so shifted, you know, since the kind of thirty golden years or the thirty glorious years, whatever you want to call them, of the sort of post post war era, um, the, the the you know, sort of the level of disempowerment is almost entirely goes on one side. And it's not just like Bosses being able to tell workers what to do, but to keep them in a state of precarity where they they don't have enough hours and they don't have enough wages. Um, so that, for example, in the United States, half of all fast food workers have to rely on public f- welfare to make ends meet. A quarter of college teachers, adjuncts, have to use welfare to make ends meet. And so we have what's called a high wel- welfare, low wage society. Britain is actually the closest to us in this respect. When we say high welfare, it doesn't mean that the welfare system is generous, if anything is actually pretty thin uh, and miserly, but that as a share of the amount of total money that low-income workers need to just make do and make it survive, welfare, public welfare makes up a really high share of that. And the reason for that is that we basically have come to, sub- to subsidize low-wage work. So the p- companies that don't pay enough uh, get to benefit from, from the rest of us as taxpayers, Uh, making up the difference. And sorry, last point, but that also subjects working people to two forms of coercion. Because on the one hand, they're coerced at the workplace, and their hours are precarious, and they're always at the mercy of the boss. But it also subjects them to the coercion of the welfare administrator, right? It's like, oh, you know, you spent 12 quid on cigarettes and, and and beer, I see, you know, so and that's not allowed, you know, you're only allowed on you know, to buy cans of beans and whatever. I don't know. But the point is that it's it actually when when you have a market tyranny, there, it often goes hand in hand with state tyranny because working people don't, aren't making enough to just live in dignity.
0: Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more with that. In the UK, we call them in-work benefits. And what that means essentially is that people have jobs and they work very hard, often much harder than the people who run society. In fact, um and they're not paid enough to make ends meet and therefore they have to receive benefits from the government too and you you're absolutely right it it leads to a double form of coercion or a double form of indignity where they have to work in a place that is not necessarily doesn't necessarily have the best working conditions certainly has terrible pay and then they're also at the at the mercy of the welfare state and we all know that the welfare state can be quite um, vindictive and uh, authoritarian in the way it deals with poor people and the instructions it gives them about how to change their lives, how to raise their children, what they should be doing, what they should be eating. So, yes, I agree with that. And I think the um, the link-up between um, ruthless bosses who underpay people and a welfare state that is willing to step in to prop that up, that's something that really needs a lot of criticism and a lot of questioning. Um I, I thought what you were saying there about wokeness that that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, the thing that strikes me is the the way in which lifestyle leftism or identity politics the 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 ease with which it lends itself to the tyrannical aspirations of the boss class. That's what I find most striking. It's it's a very useful tool. You know, this is why so many corporations in the US have got copies of Robin DiAngelo's book on white fragility, for example, or this is why HR departments in the UK have embraced the pride ideology and the trans ideology, and they've closed down uh, women's toilets and made everything gender neutral, and they've sacked women for expressing certain views on biological sex. All of these tools are are very useful for, for a class that is keen to divide workers.
1: They're they're also great depoliticization tools. Uh, what I what I mean by that is removing politics as the arena in which social relations are fought and maybe hopefully reach a, reach a consensus. Is that's what you know democracies are supposed to do, as you noted in your in your great essay, um, which we adapted from your book, which we published at Compact Mag. Uh, we, we call it Cheers for the Swinish Multitude. Um, that's what we're supposed to do, is to contest things politically. What, what this kind of ideology of, whether it's the pride ideology or, or Robin DiAngelo thought, Ibram Kendi thought, is it, it actually does a great deal of um, depoliticization. What I mean by that is, yes, we have fraught social relations in the United States. Uh, we have fraught class relations in the United States. What these ideologies do is turn it into a kind of self-help problem. It's it's up to you individually to like work through your biases and work through your bad thoughts. Or if you're a if you're a member of the minorities, you know, we're gonna give you this kind of self-help affirmation that you're you're great, you're blah, 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 your story is foregrounded, other other stories have to now recede to the background because formerly your story was pushed into the background, and so on and so forth. None of this is politics, right? It, it is politics. It's politics that, as you say, helps the boss class, because it keeps things at the level of your own individual mind and what you should do to become a better person. And it's a very old phenomenon. You know, I wrote an essay for the New Statesman about how the United States has long had this self-help tradition. It's a very middle-class ideology. In a way, it's admirable, and I'm not putting it all of it down, but at its worst, it can function like Yes, we have an exploitative class system. Yes, we have fraught social relations. And the way to fix it is for you to like eat better food and try harder to be on time and, you know, discipline your body, et cetera, et cetera. These aren't bad things. You know, I like to run. I like to try to eat salad instead of, you know, fatty foods and so on. But this is not ultimately change structural issues which have to be fought politically so this kind of Ibram Kendi stuff and Robin D'Angelo in a way is a reprise, reprise of self-help like work through your mental biases and help yourself
0: yeah absolutely and it, it's extraordinary I mean there have been situations in the UK I've I found myself in media debates with old-fashioned leftists where I'm arguing against the right of bosses to Uh, measure the so-called unwitting prejudices of their workforce. And I'm saying that's a bad thing. We shouldn't let uh, the leaders of the capitalist class into working-class people's minds. And then you have people on the traditional left saying, yes, we should. We've got to clean out all these prejudices. And it, it kind of invites the boss class into a level they hadn't been in before, which is right into the brains and the emotions and the souls of the people who work for them, which is pretty extraordinary when you think about DEI, diversity, equality, uh, inclusion, and and all those initiatives in the workplace today. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of things that I think are are quite US-specific. By that, I mean, when I read them in your book, I was really shocked and horrified because we don't have them here in the UK. One uh, uh, example is in your chapter on privatising emergency, which is a really extraordinary chapter on um, the uh, uh, encroachment of private corporations um, private capitalism into uh, the provision of emergency services to American people and you have one example of a family in Arizona whose um, home burned down and uh, the local firefighters came and put the fire out which is great that's what you would expect them to do but there was always a there was also a private firefighting firm something that would horrify uh British listeners I'm sure we don't have private firefighting firms and i don't think we should have this is a service that should be provided by the state for everyone who lives in the country um but you talk about this private firefighting firm that uh, turned up stood around bullshitting and then billed the family twenty thousand at- dollars now I, I i think you you will understand because you've lived in the united kingdom and you've traveled the world you will know that that will be shocking to listeners outside of the united states so just describe how that kind of situation has come about and and what is ordinary americans response to the fact that even emergency provision can be privatized in this way
1: it, it, it's absolutely horrifying it's the sort of story when, when you read it and you know you don't believe it at first but it's it's, it's all too true um so you know, firefighting used to be a kind of uh, privateering business in, in United States in the 19th century. There were volunteer clubs, but then gradually they became uh, competitive because these various private private firefighting clubs would try to get be the first to get to a fire and then uh, collect insurance payouts by by doing that. But then you know, in the beginning, in the late 19th and into the 20th century, we the United States established firefighting as a sort of social service, and it's one of the great achievements of modernity is to have these emergency services as a socially organized um, response. Likewise with ambulances beginning in the second half of the 20th century. And there were always private firefighters in the United States. It makes sense in some ways that doesn't in Britain because we have these, it's a vast country with vast uninhabited areas. So if you're a private landowner, you know, in the middle of nowhere in the Rockies, who else is going to serve you, but like a private firefighting, because there's no town or incorporated area. But more recently, these firefighting services have made encroachments into, you know, the firefighting that ordinary people rely on in rural areas um, and emergency services likewise. Um, and more specifically, these firms, which is it's already shocking to have private firefighting for ordinary people and ambulances likewise, But there's another level of deviousness. There are two more layers of deviousness there. The first one, first added layer of deviousness is that these firms are now being bought out by private equity and hedge funds. And what private equity and hedge funds do with firms is they take them over and they, in their own telling, make the allocation of capital more efficient. In what ordinary people would understand is they just sort of asset strip the firm and try to try to squeeze as much profit as in short a term as possible with as little investment as possible. And by the way, they add massively to the firm's debt. Um, this works really well for the private equity partners because they bet on like 11 firms. And even if nine of them fail, the one of the 10, 10 or 11 succeeds. And on the whole, they end up doing fine and better than fine. But ordinary people, you know, can't—they can't, they can't uh, take eleven jobs and hope that one of them works out. And likewise, ordinary communities can't be like, "Well, this particular emergency firm failed because of private equity management, but other ones didn't." You—you only have your emergency services that you have in your area. So that's one devious element of this story in the United States. The third, and still more devious element of this is that the pension funds of public firefighters and emergency services workers are investing in the very private equity funds and hedge funds that are in the business of privatizing their jobs so that you have workers' capital being coercively used to dispossess workers of their own solid, stable, working-class jobs. Um, And so that's how that problem comes about. Um, And uh, again, like I said, to, to foreign ears, this is one of those where it's like this is really wild capitalism. That said, it, you know, Britain Britain, and Europe more broadly, but especially Britain certainly has this sort of scourge of too much private equity and hedge funds um, that are out in the, you know, they, they would love to see the NHS privatized. Um, I, I think it would be a disaster. I, uh, I think you and I have talked about this before. I'm not saying the NHS is perfect, but the NHS is an achievement. And it is weird to have this sort of weird NHS warship that happens from time to time in britain that said um there are certain things this kind of safety that you have when the nhs works well and you go to the hospital you know, the, go to the clinic and you address your problem and you don't have to fear a bill showing up in your mailbox afterward it's a constant anxiety of american life even if you have health insurance you know you sh- you go to the doctor and then uh you have your insurance, but it's like, oh, but you use this kind of X-ray service that wasn't covered by your insurance in this regional area, so therefore you still owe fifteen thousand dollars. Is a constant crisis of American life now, now bound up with the rise of private equity and hedge funds. Um,
0: yeah, I think the um, the American health system is a mystery to many British people, I have to say. Um, and as you as you say, the NHS is not perfect, but it is free at the point of demand and you can get a doctor's appointment, you can have an operation and it, it doesn't cost a penny. And I think that's a good thing, personally speaking. Um, but I, I want to, on, on that point, I want to ask you about the problem with privatising emergency or the problem with privatising health. So we we've given the example of this private firefighting service, and you make the point that in some parts of America, which is a vast country, that might make sense. Um, The other example is whenever I'm in New York City, in Manhattan, walking around, I'm always struck by the fact that you will see all sorts of ambulances going past. They seem to be, they're not uniform. In the UK, you have one kind of ambulance, it makes the same noise as every other kind of ambulance because it is a state-provided service that is taking people to a state-funded hospital. Um, but in Manhattan, you will see all sorts of ambulances going to different hospitals, presumably provided by different companies. I don't know, but it is a, quite a confusing sight for those of us who come from a country with a universal health service. Um, but I wanted to ask you in relation to this, isn't the broader issue here that there are just some services in society that should be governed by something other than the profit motive? Uh, something that I would consider higher than the profit motive, which is uh, the social good, the common good. There is a social good in making people well. There is a social good, for example, in educating children. So that that, that raises questions about private education, although I do think people should have that choice. Uh, there is a social good in putting out fires, especially if they pose risk to life and property, and therefore that should possibly be provided by society itself. So... It, you, you say that you haven't become a Marxist, you haven't become a leftist, uh, but there is an issue, isn't there, with elevating the profit motive above other considerations that we need to really start to critique and think about.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, you don't have to be a Marxist to favor that uh, that government is better poised to provide certain services. Um, and uh, I think eminently, you know, water, electricity, these sort of common goods should be public utilities. And actually, this kind of plays into your earlier point about uh, wokeness, et cetera. There's another area in which um, actually the rise of private power is is both abetted by wokeness in the ways that we talked about, but also abets wokeness. And here's what I mean. I mean, the more we privatize these kinds of services that all people rely on, the more ordinary people become vulnerable to kind of political loss of their ability to just meet ordinary needs. So debanking, for example, is a huge problem across the West after the January 6th riots, which needless to say, I thought were like a, a, a clownish and shameful episode in the history of the American right. But whatever you think of those people, um, they were barred by services like PayPal from fundraising for their for their defense. Um, they were essentially de-PayPaled. Uh, likewise, then you had the truckers in Canada when they rose up against vaccine mandates. Um, the Canadian government debanked them quite ruthlessly. Farmers in the Netherlands and now most recently, uh, you know, Coots Bank, uh, sort of elite luxury bank in, uh, in Britain doing that to Nigel Farage. Um, there's a reason why there's a doctrine in common law actually called the common carrier doctrine, which Britain and the United States um, share with each other, which is that you know, services like public utilities, uh, you know, ships that, so that market their services to everyone, bridges, et cetera, can't discriminate unreasonably against people. So like your phone company or landline phone company, if anyone still has a landline phone, can't kick you out of their service because you supported Brexit in the phone calls that you made. Um, but, but, you know, the more we expand the scope of the private, especially into these dangerous areas, and the more d- we deregulate the private uh, we had, The more vulnerable we come to, like, the whims of a coots manager, you know, who's like, doesn't like Farage's worldview. Um, so I think there's like, these are the areas where we should insist on in the old fashioned social democratic way of like asserting the primacy of politics and of the common good over absolute privatized deregulated rights.
0: Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now, on with the show. Um, Okay, another thing that leapt out at me as a possibly quite American thing, although I know it happens in other parts of the world too, but it was shocking to me as a British reader of your book... Um, you have this great list early on in the book about the things that um, the boss class, the the people who run organisations and companies and corporations, the things they are legally allowed to do by law in the United States. And it's a list that people will, I guess, be quite familiar with. They're legally allowed to pay poverty wages. Um, they are allowed to schedule work time with little regard for uh, their workers' well-being or whether they can make it at that time um they can regulate and curtail workers speech uh, we know that we've we've all um heard examples of that in in recent years and then there's one thing on this list which which made my mouth drop where it says they can mandate attendance at anti union meetings and I suddenly thought, oh, hold on, that that's overstepping the mark, even from the British context. And we do have union busting in the UK. We do have efforts by government to undermine uh, the rights of trade unionists and the right to strike. Uh, the current Conservative government, for example, wants to introduce um, a minimum service idea where a public sector organisation will have to provide a minimum service, even though its workers have voted to go on strike which is a clear interference in the right of workers to withdraw their labour. But when I read that on your list, they can that workplaces can mandate attendance at anti-union meetings, I found that quite shocking. So could you just say something about anti-union sentiment in the US, particularly in workplaces, uh, and why you think that's a problem specifically?
1: So in the United States, um, there's... This new doctrine, when I say new, it's relatively, it's newer than the original law that allows workers to engage in collective bargaining, which is called the Wagner Act or the National Labor Relations Act. That was enacted in 1935. But beginning in the 1940s and 50s, um, Congress and courts and conservative national relations boards started to um, insist that if, if workers have the right to free speech in terms of organizing, then... Uh, employers should have the, a symmetrical right to free speech to do anti-union organizing. The reason that's a sort of bizarre assertion is because um, it assumes that the two are already on a kind of symmetrical, equal footing, when in fact, of course, as everyone knows, workers are typically much more vulnerable um, um, in terms of being able to be fearing for be able to make livelihoods and so forth. Uh, but at any rate, uh, as a result of that, Union consultants and so forth have anti-union consultants have come up with this practice of what's called captive audience hearings or ca- captive audience meetings, where workers can be forced to show up uh, as long as there's no immediate threat of closing down the shop. Um, they can be they can be scared that if you unionize this particular shop, will close down. Uh, so the employers have found really devious ways of just skirting the line of what it means to threaten or induce just short of that by sort of speaking, predicting dangerous things happening. If they unionize and so forth, they can get, get away with it. Um, yeah. And, and of course it's, um, it's, uh, it's premised on this equality of power between the two sides. By the way, not even individual workers uh, can speak up at those meetings if the company doesn't want to. Certainly union activists aren't allowed. Likewise, union activists can't access the, uh, even the parking lot of a, of a workforce unless there's no other way to reach the group of workers and so on. So we had this law in 1935, which was already compared to other European or developed country. The developed nation standards was pretty weak, called the Wagner Act. And then over the seven, decade, seven eight decades since, it's been chipped away at, chipped away at, to the point where union density in the United States, the share of workers that belong to private economy unions is about 6% now, which is right about where it was, you know, in the pre-depression uh, years, of pre-New Deal years. Um, even though unions are more popular than they, they've ever been, um, especially after the pandemic, there was this clear sense that workers want to join labor unions. But because it's been made so hard to unionize your workplace in the United States, the share remains pretty low. Britain, compared to continental Europe, also has a relatively um, low union density. I think it's about 12 percent or something like that in the private economy.
0: Um, I did want to um, press you on on the union question a little bit, because I think you've surprised some readers and some reviewers Um with one of your proposals for how to address this um, private tyranny, this um, uh, extraordinary power that corporations have over working people, Um, one of your proposals is for broader unionisation, broader um, trade union activity or workers' rights. Uh, I think you've surprised some people on the right who will disagree with you, and you've surprised some people on the left who probably think you're a crazy right-wing fascist, as they tend to think about lots of people these days, including me and others. Um, I wanted to ask you how feasible you think unionisation is as a counterweight to some of the problems we're talking about and the problems you write about in your book. So if you look at the British context, for example... um, we had very strong trade unions for a long time uh, especially in the post-war period right up to the miners strike of the 1980s which is obviously very widely known about across the world it was essentially a, a civil war really between working people and the um the government of margaret thatcher of the time uh, it was a- an incredibly um intense clash between workers demanding the right to work and a government that said we're going to put you out to pasture we don't need you anymore um that was in some ways, I think, the last gasp of um, uh, militant trade unionism anyway. And since then, the number of days lost to strike action in the UK have declined year on year. And there's been an outburst of strikes over the past year, wildcat strikes, public sector strikes and so on. But it's nothing like it was in the past, going back to the minor strike in the 80s or the general strike in 1926. Um is it similar in America? Has, the, has there been a decline in militant trade union activity? And how do you explain that? Do you think that can only be explained by corporate restrictions on trade union rights? Or does it also reflect a broader loss of confidence, I guess, amongst working people, or a broader loss of um, a willingness amongst sections of society to push a certain agenda? How, how would you describe the possible withering of trade unionism in, in American workplaces and other workplaces,
1: yeah, there's there's been a drastic decline since the 1970s. Really, the the mid 1970s, I think, in uh, were the, were the turning point, uh, for the decline of private economy labor unionism in the United States. Uh, of course, in Britain, it's the 1980s and the clashes with the Iron, Iron Lady. Um, so how do you explain it? I, you know, in the book, I rely heavily on, and I marshal lots of studies to show that it's it's in part just because it's been made harder and harder. Uh, So over the years to get to a union, so in the United States, there are three stages for you to unionize a workplace. First, you need to gather enough signatures on a petition to show that there's interest, and then you have to hold an election, and then you have to get a contract within a year of winning your election. What's happened since the 1970s is all those three stages, um, workers have become less likely to prevail. So um, they're less likely to get to petitions, uh, less likely to get sufficient signatures for petitions. Um, They become much less likely to win elections and then much less likely to be able to get a contract within a year, which is the deadline. Um, So there there are several ways to explain this. The answer of the, the liberals and i when I say liberals i I mean um kind of conservative liberals as well uh or neoliberals is just that you know unions just aren't popular anymore, but then we have lots and lots of studies showing that lots of worker lots more workers want to be represented than currently are, which suggests that um unions are more popular than ever, as I said, polling suggests this, there are studies that show this, uh, uh, up to, uh, you know, millions of workers are underrepresented. So uh, take that off the picture. Another explanation is that automation and globalization had a factor in this. That's true in manufacturing sectors, but manufacturing isn't the whole of the economy. So if you control for the manufacturing uh, question, this, the decline across other sectors is still quite steep since the 1970s which suggests that just blaming China or just blaming robots isn't sufficient either. So that leaves you with my preferred explanation, which is just that in the United States, um, the employer class got much better at waging class warfare and preventing unionization. Those other factors work too, though. And, And again, you know, it's the trade and free trade and globalization factor. That's, you know, that wasn't ordained by nature, It wasn't inevitable. That was a choice that the West made um, to de-emphasize making material stuff and move toward a more services-based economy where, as it happens, especially in um, lower-end services, it's quite hard to unionize workers. Um, We made that choice. Well, we didn't make it. Mostly elites did. And uh, the the rest of us, ordinary people, paid the price in the form of not just the loss of labor unionism. What an economy that we found suddenly uh, that uh, couldn't manufacture stuff once the pandemic hit. Oh, wait, most of the raw materials for uh, many of our drugs are made in China. Oh, wait, we, we can't manufacture our own masks. Oh, wait, we can't manufacture our own you know, ventilators. And some of this stuff we've revamped since then. Um, but it just revealed that the kind of free trade model had, had kind of hollowed out uh U- the, the U.S. economy. I mean, in, in Britain, the, I, the so the loss of manufacturing has been unbelievably, uh, unbelievably tragic. I mean, the, the, what does what the U.K. economy run on? It's like expensive real estate in the southeast uh, and financial services and insurance. Like the east was used to be an industrial powerhouse of the nineteenth century, right? It's a uh, but these one thing I argue is like. It's, people say, well, it's because of competitive advantage of Vietnam and China. The vicious labor laws of China and Vietnam don't grow on specific trees that are unique to the Vietnamese and Chinese, you know, <laughs> climate. It, it, it's a choice. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to allow companies to go over there. If you want to do business with the West, with our democracies, with our decent laws, etc., and, and and our talent that we have, you should pay you know, Western wages. And I think we are going in that direction. Um, I think the pandemic had one effect, which is this rethinking of these capillary supply chains that are super, super thin, and then could clearly snap under the slightest pressure. I think that's a good thing.
0: Uh, Okay, just a couple more questions for you. Um, I want to talk to you about future politics or potential future politics. There's a really, there's a part towards the end of your book that really Struck a chord with me. The subheading is neither nostalgia nor utopia. And what you do there, you recognise that two groups in society are going to be ticked off with your thesis. The first is the kind of libertarian bros or the kind of uh, libertarian think tanks and so on who who've been saying for quite some time that there is no alternative to neoliberalism. You know, the politics of Tina. This is this is all there is. I mean, Thatcher herself said there is no alternative. And that's been embraced as a kind of ideology by lots of um, libertarians who think the free market is the epoch of the high point of freedom. And then the other side that will not like your proposals or your ideas, as you point out here, is is the left who, who want the abolition of private property. You've already said you don't want that. I think the, left's, the, the left wing that demands that these days, I think that it's, it's a pipe dream. I mean, it's not even something that's on the agenda. It's kind of a, a comforting uh, utopian cry that they make, which doesn't have any kind of purchase in society.
1: Except in kind of really uh, like the creepy um, degrowth communism, you know, that they they've channeled it into what if we create a world where there's just stark want, you know, which is so contrary to the old Marxist model of more of stuff, more like we will deliver more stuff for free to the worker, not like, you know, have you tried eating, you know,
0: (laughs) it's, it's extraordinary. It's the, the turnaround on the left is just something, I mean, I've been writing about it for years and years, but it is utterly, bamboozling in so many ways how the left went from calling for a world of plenty in which people would have if anything too much stuff to a left that says you know let's stop economic growth and we can all have a hair shirt existence um but you talk about neither nostalgia nor utopia and you recognize that these two wings i guess of contemporary I would say it's a kind of pantomime form of politics in some ways. It's There's often a lack of substance, but they kind of scream at each other like a Punch and Judy show, libertarians on one side and uh, authoritarian leftists on the other. Um, and so, so explain to listeners what your cut through there would be. So we don't want, I think you and I agree, we don't want the excessive free market obsessions of the libertarian clique, who I think are, insensitive to the impacts, the authoritarian impacts that free market ideology can have on ordinary people's lives. We also don't want the kind of post-class left, obviously, who've given up on the working classes and, as you say, have embraced a lifestyle leftism, which is really about controlling how people think and what they can say and how they engage with each other
1: And like what kind of straws they can use, you know. Exactly.
0: And uh, yeah, and they've given up on questions of economic power and economic clout, which was once the defining mission of the left to think about those things. What's your cut through? What's what's your proposal then for a future politics that is neither of those two things?
1: So it's 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 a restoration in the United States context of the New Deal order. Um, And so the characteristics are that of that are uh, a market economy that is that is defined by uh, heavy rates of unionization. In 1945, it was a third of private economy workers. It's plunged, as I said, to 6% today. And there's all sorts of pathologies that come from that. Like I said, it's a low wage, high benefit economy. You know, taxpayers end up subsidizing um, the low wages of, you know, greedy employers. Um, That's bad. So you have a high wage, high union economy Greater cooperation between state, market, and labor. So that was one of the hallmarks of the sort of 1945-1973 model. Was there was a sort of tripartite meeting between these three camps, where they would sit down and uh, kind of think about what 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 is the mission for the economy as a whole? What do we want? Um, and I think along with that goes just a greater emphasis on the real economy, saving the real economy from the sort of weird vaporware economy of sort of exotic financial instruments and just like apps and so forth that are addictive and funny or whatever, but they don't actually, no one, no one is enriched by, you know, an app that can deliver your food, uh, you know, ever faster and so forth because it, it relies on, you know, a a labor force of Guatemalans who are hyper exploited. Like you can walk down the street and get your sandwich, you know. And so it's an eco- it's a rentier economy, right? Like all these apps and so forth, they don't actually add anything to the economy. They just sort of take little fees from it. Oh, it's like a four dollar service fee and a two dollar. Um, this no one is 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 meaningfully uh, enriched by any of that. So an econ- you know, shifting back to an economy where the West makes stuff material stuff and in in fact the war in ukraine whatever your stance on it i happen to be much of a dove i think we should try to reach a negotiated settlement but one thing the war in ukraine has exposed is the extent to which the west can't just do like industrial stuff anymore we're running out of munitions uh we're running out of stuff and so um in this sense i want to see a a restoration of that um cutting down on the ability of large multinational firms to you know trick everyone through all sorts of arbitrage. So open borders is one form of arbitrage. It's labor arbitrage, meaning uh, you undercut um, native workers by just flooding in armies of people who are ultra exploitable and vulnerable and willing to always work for less. That used to be something the left and labor unions in the United States opposed, and now they've become Totally bought into that program. I think it's not good for for all sorts of reasons, not just social cohesion reasons, but economic ones as well. Um, so that's what I'm. T- I, you know, it, it's funny because I'm often accused of being kind of "quote unquote" radical, in, and in some ways I am in my diagnosis. But I think people will, reading this book will be surprised at the degree to which, um, in its prescriptions, it's a it's a work of humdrum reform. Uh, and a belief in, in, in small-D democratic um, power to compass the market once more. The market is good. Just don't make a fetish out of it. Realize it's a tool and it's subject to political give-and-take. The question is who does the give-and-take and on what terms, um, whether it's, it's really one-sided and uh, dominated by a na- relatively narrow class or whether – more ordinary people get to have a say in how we run the market economy.
0: Um, Yeah, I I hope you will take this in the spirit in which it is intended. But I recently read Bernie Sanders' book, and I reviewed it for Spite. And I was not very impressed. And I read in your book, I thought, Sorab's book is more Bernie Sanders than Bernie Sanders' book, in terms of your diagnosis of the problems with uh, uh, American capitalism. And I wouldn't say that your proposals are humdrum, but they are fairly moderate, but they're also very clear. So it's interesting to me that there are voices like yours that are willing to push forward arguments that were once made by traditional democratic leftists or people concerned about the working classes. And that is increasingly absent on the left. And it's I, I think it's a good thing that we see it in other sections of the political sphere. I've got one more um, question for you, which is a very big question. And maybe this is a setup for a future podcast that you and I can do, who knows, but I do want to ask you about the post liberal movement, um, and whether you're a part of it. Now, um, there is a, a big discussion about post liberals. You have people like Patrick Deneen in the United States here in the UK. We have, uh, you know, writers like Mary Harrington, for example. And then we have, we have red Tories and people like that. Um, Parts of it concern me uh, quite a lot because I think one of the issues I have is the possibility that um, in talking about the problems thrown up by freedom, we risk throwing out freedom. So just to give an example within the context that you're writing about, I agree with you that the idea that the free market is the high point of freedom is A ridiculous idea, and ignores the tyrannical consequences that life in the free market, at the sharp edge of the free market, can have. Um, But I do worry sometimes about the um, the problematization of some of the consequences of freedom, and the impact that might have on the valuation we give to freedom more broadly. Because I would argue that freedom, to my mind, is still the most important value in society, uh, if it's a freedom that um, is real. That is uh, that uh, empowers people and gives them extraordinary authority over their own lives and over aspects of their workplace and so on. Um, are you worried that even a term like post-liberal, um, even though you and I would disagree with lots of what was dressed up as liberal politics, that it can come off as post-liberty, post-freedom? And there is an important aspect here, isn't there, of defending freedom even as we criticise the excesses of the free market?
1: So, uh I, I do. I, I have been called post-liberal, and I don't. I don't shy away from the label, um, but I, I. But it's not my favorite term. The, the reason being that it's it's only defined in the negative. It's defined in relation to something you're transcending, supposedly liberalism, um, and so. Uh, that said, post-liberalism for me stands for a skepticism of. Of of ideological liberalism, which says that the highest goods of human life is maximal individual autonomy, and in saying that, I you know I stand in a in a much older tradition stretching back to, to Plato and Aristotle, who would say, and then obviously I should say cards on the table, I'm Catholic, and this way of thinking about politics then was incorporated into the way the church thinks about politics, which is that the end of politics is to secure the bonum commune, the common good. Um, So, but here's several points to make about that. The first is absolutely the defense of freedom, really freedom, really understood, is is essential. And I, I would never renounce freedom because that's, not only is it rhetorically insane, right? I'm actually for the opposite of liberty, um, even as, as just a mere partisan in the public square, you know, it's like saying like, yes, I, you know, I, I love bad things, you know, of course not. But, but more substantively than that, like the argument with liberalism, with ideological liberalism, especially as it's evolved um, in, in recent years into neoliberalism, is that precisely by, by, uh, fetishizing individual autonomy, it's paradoxically left us less free. So it's not a, 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 a disavowal of of true liberty, but of the kinds of in the kinds of ways where, um, you know, the insistence on saying that the human is utterly autonomous over the body, to the extent that I can, you know, change my sex, which is something that both you know genetics and Genesis tell us is pretty immutable. Uh, and not only is it enough that I that i be allowed to become the opposite sex, but in order for me to feel find f- true fulfillment in my sort of experiment and living, you also have to affirm me. So that I, I would argue that 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 final move where you have to say the right pronouns and so forth on pain of social ostracism and even of of paying a sort of material price for your failure to do so. That phenomenon, I argue, is embedded in, in, in liberalism, that it's not a departure from liberalism, but is is a working out of liberalism's fundamental principles, ideological liberalism. Um, so, I mean, he, he, that, 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 that's where I would leave it at, that um, it's not a... I, I see my, my project as a, as, a, as a recovery of true freedom, which has been assailed by ideological liberalism. Last thing I would say, though, just not to leave it there, is that there are plenty of achievements of liberal society that I value, right? Democratic deliberation, um, due process, orderly administration of things. The only thing I would say is that sometimes ideological liberals claim for liberalism things that had already developed, before liberalism. So, for example, there's the Magna Carta, right? The um, the idea of rule of law is as old as the Roman Empire, right? So it's, And many other the Chinese empires, Persian empires, we didn't necessarily like everything they did. But the point is that, you know, some of these things were not invented in the sort of cauldron of, of the 18th and 17th centuries, but rather had been developed civilizationally much longer, which suggests that by by dispensing some of the dogmas of liberal ideology of maximal autonomy in every realm all the time, you needn't necessarily end up with, I don't know, some dark society without rule of law, without due process, et cetera. And I, so uh, that said, I think there's a better term that I've uh, you know, applied to myself is that I'm, you know, my the worldview I'm articulating right now is anyone who's of your listeners who's Catholic, or at least was raised Catholic, would just recognize it as a kind of Catholic politics, which I think is humane at, you know, a lot of the social democratic ideas that we celebrated in this podcast have their own Catholic analogs, or in some cases they have like explicitly Catholic roots. And um, it needn't mean the loss of liberty, in fact, again I insist, is a recovery of true freedom.
0: So, rob right. thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me, Brennan.